The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, put down the Kiwi Popsicle and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 589 with guest Sahil Malik, recorded live Sunday, June 27, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Silverlight 4 video training with Billy Hollis on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now, a man with the thunder, the wonder, down under... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, and we're in New Zealand. We are in New Zealand. In Auckland, New Zealand. Richard, you were born in New Zealand. I was indeed. And uh, we went to see your aunt, your two aunts. Yes, and, and my uncles. their respective uncles on their dairy farm up yeah. north. Well, it's actually southeast of where we are. It's in Taranga. Yeah. So up north of the island. We're in the northern part of the island, but we're even further north here in Auckland. So tell us a little bit about New Zealand, because maybe we don't really know all that much about it. Anyway, in the States, we don't really know all that much about New Zealand. So it's the smallest Western democracy in the world. Only about 4.1 million people live here. It's made up of two major islands. The North Island is volcanic. The South Island is not. It's actually a chunk of Antarctica rotating on the Pacific Rim. So they're very different, the two islands. And the south is where the Lord of the Rings was filmed, That's right? right. And that's the, the west side of it is very mountainous and rough. Uh, it looks like Norway with the big fjords and things. And the east side is yeah. where all the sheep farms and things are. Yeah. And the center of uh, North Island is Ruapehu, which is a huge volcano that somebody put a ski resort on because New Zealanders are crazy like that. Yeah, didn't all the crazy sports come from New Zealand? There's a lot of crazy sports. Bungee jumping. Yep, we definitely like our bungee jumping around here. Some of those other crazy yeah. sports, parasailing. Yeah, ki- uh, the jet ski boats, the, the jet boats that will run in very shallow water. That's, hmm. that's a favorite around here. And uh, how was it settled? Well, the, this, it was discovered by the English, but there was a people already here. The Polynesian peoples that went into Hawaii and Easter Island and all of those little South Pacific islands hmm. also found uh, New Zealand. 
uh, about a thousand years ago and mm-hmm. uh, were moved in quite comfortably. And so they were here when the English found it, when Cook got here. And the natives are called the Maori? They're Maori, yes. Mm-hmm. And they're um, famous for their wood carvings and, and uh, tattooing. It's quite a, it's an interesting culture and, mm. uh, and quite a, a active part of, of the New Zealand culture as well. There's a, a very famous rugby team here called the All Blacks. Yeah, you know, I thought it was a little disconcerting when we were in the uh, the, the passport line at the airport and uh, there was a sign that said all passports here and then another sign that said all blacks and I thought <laughs> oh my god this is America in the south in the 60s. Now the all blacks is the is a famous rugby team and before the team plays they do a Maori ritual of intimidation called a haka hmm. which is uh, something to see on TV but even more impressive in person. Crazy. Well, it's very cool to be here in New Zealand, and I'm uh, we're a tech ed New Zealand, of course. Uh, about two thousand delegates here, mm-hmm. and um, we we didn't have a stage like we did in Australia, but uh, we did do a sixty four bit question quiz show here, and we're gonna do a little bit more uh, next year. I hope. Yeah, you bet. And and the recharge bar, which is actually in a bar, yeah. which I think is pretty cool, is a great spot to hang out. Yeah, I guess they have uh, some Wi Fi there and. It's a good place to... And beer. And beer. Good place to get some work done. So, uh, we're here, of course, but um, we're we're not going to have a show from here yet. Yet. We will have a show. Um, Also, if you look on my Facebook page, Carl Eric Franklin is my Facebook page. You want to make me a Facebook friend, go ahead and do that. I've posted some uh, videos and some pictures from my trip here. Um, Some about .NET Rocks and some not. Uh, so this is, uh, one of our, uh, live weekend shows that mm-hmm. we did with Sahil Malik and he's still crazy about SharePoint. He is. Yeah. Let's roll the tape. Hey, we're here with Sahil Malik. Hi, Sahil. Hey, how are you guys? We're doing well. Having a good time here. Have you been listening to any of our shows? Streams? No, I just woke up. Uh, you know, came back to the U.S. late last night, so I just oh. came back and slept, and I just woke up. <laughs> That's right. You were you stayed in Oslo for another week, didn't you? I did. I did. Doing training over there, right? Right. Because yeah, we were all together in Norway last week for the Norwegian Developers Conference, and and you stayed on for a whole class. How many people were in the class? Uh, there were about twelve people in the class. Nice. So not not very big, but you know, it's all right. It was good. So you are really are SharePoint all the time, aren't you? SharePoint all the time, uh, yeah. But you know, one of the things about SharePoint is uh, it, it has its tentacles and everything. And I think uh, a mark of a good software techie is flexibility. It's not what you know; it's what you can learn. Right. So it's SharePoint today, something else tomorrow. Who knows? It was something else yesterday. <laughs> SharePoint has been very good to you, though. That's for sure, right? I, I would say so. Yeah, SharePoint has been very good to me. Exactly. It's. Uh, and with SharePoint 2010, it's gotten bigger and better. So I'm hoping, you know, the trend will continue. Let's hope. Yeah, we've been we've talked a few times about 2010. It, it does seem to be a step forward, but especially whereas developers, uh, you know, developing tools for SharePoint or developing anything to work inside SharePoint goes, it's a totally different story. We put that whole DVD together, Carl, and you know, I was up in uh, New London, Connecticut, about three weeks ago, recording. Uh, you know, with you, uh, yeah. we've recorded almost for 18, 20 hours of content this time. It was yeah. quite a lot. That's right. 
Our guys are hard at work on getting that ready. We're going to be selling Sweet. that soon at Franklin's Net. So just awesome. out of curiosity, because awesome. I wasn't there for the recording, did you talk, dig into stuff like building Silverlight inside of SharePoint? Oh, absolutely we did. Uh, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, people are getting used to these rich applications these days, like Bing Maps or Google Maps. Yes. And and they they feel like a desktop app, but they are delivered and run through a browser securely, right? Right. Uh, and and I see uh, two equally compelling technologies here, and one is Silverlight, obviously, and the other, believe it or not, is JavaScript. Really? Uh, yeah, there's just so much that you can do with plain JavaScript. In some instances, uh, JavaScript wins over Silverlight, and in some instances, Silverlight wins over JavaScript. It just depends what you're doing. Yeah, if you like case sensitivity, then JavaScript definitely wins. Yeah, oh, well, I don't like there's so much there's so much to JavaScript, especially you know with jQuery now that there's there's just unlimited potential. Oh yeah, it is it is getting big, and and you know as powerful Silverlight is, and as much fun it is to work with Silverlight, there are some places that uh, that, that that are just annoying to work with Silverlight. Like I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, you know, like the menu on the top of any website. Uh, if you hover over a menu and it's supposed to pop open right. uh, a menu, like a drop-down, um, and something like that is very hard to do in Silverlight. Now, uh, people say, why is that hard to do? Because you can show and hide areas in Silverlight very easily. But uh, the reason it becomes so hard to do is that, you know, when Silverlight, the, the Silverlight Zap file, the application changes its dimensions, right. it likes to push everything around it. It cannot easily hover on top of existing elements without making significant changes to how Silverlight is hosted on a page, which creates some other issues. I've gotten the sense that other than streaming media, Silverlight doesn't mix well with HTML pages, that you really want Silverlight to own the whole page or none of it with the exception of sort of the video audio player? Well, you can certainly use, uh, you can have a page that's mostly HTML and JavaScript and have little islands of Silverlight that do things by themselves and, right. and communicate back and forth. And that's, you know, that can work, that can work to your advantage as well, not just for video, but for, right. for little applets but it that are like their own little islands. They don't play yeah. well in the formatting arena. It's hard to keep those, those applets where they're supposed to be, just like Sahil described here with the menu problem. That mm -hmm. When you change well, you definitely, anything. Yeah. Like, you, know, you definitely have to decide what your islands are going to be and even what the dimensions of your islands are going to be right. on the page. Yeah, if you like press, is very fluid. If you press Control Plus, for example, mm -hmm. to enlarge the font, what happens right. to that Silverlight content? Oh, interesting point, yeah. Because it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily follow the rules of HTML with the, with the plussing. Right. Now, I, I haven't tried Well, I that. don't know. I don't uh, know what happens. Does it... Yeah. I don't know I, what happens. I, I haven't tried that, but I think that zoom and zoom out uh, works at the browser level, so it may zoom in into Silverlight. But one thing's for sure, uh, to make your point, I think if you edit the CSS of your HTML page, it's not like Silverlight adapts to that. Right. Yeah, Silverlight is not going to respond to CSS changes because it's not part of the style. Right. And will you be able to, you know, highlight the text of a Silverlight label and right-click and copy it? 
I think in Silverlight 4 you can, but it still feels a little weird. Like the text box, it's hard to put my finger on it. Like in Silverlight 3, if you right-click on, on anything, uh, it just shows Silverlight. But in Silverlight 4, yet they have right-click mouse support. Uh, and I think there might be a way to do the copy. But but the text boxes and all just feel a little weird, how the cursor blinks, how the double-clicking. It, it's not like a Windows text box. So it, it feels a little weird sometimes, I think. Hmm. So, But on the other hand, there are pluses too. Like, you know, I'll give you a perfect example. I was uh, working on a on a system that stored some JavaScript in the database because it was generated at runtime and the system sort of becomes more intelligent as you use it. And it was it would basically start with some basic JavaScript and would create more JavaScript and that would be stored in the database. And in that scenario, I needed something to edit the JavaScript as I was developing it. And uh, if I'm storing this JavaScript in the database, I, I can't really edit it from, you know, T-SQL statements. Right. It's going to be very hard. So what I did is I quickly opened a, you know, Visual Studio, created a Silverlight for RIA services app, and this drag-dropped, uh, you know, created an entity data model based on the database, drag-dropped a text box, put a save button there, and and I had a you know text editor uh, allowing me to just edit the JavaScript and hit the save button you know and it put it in the database and, and almost no code the total time to write this application was like five minutes or less nice so there are there are pluses but on the other hand you know the uh, JavaScript on the other hand is also becoming very powerful with these newer browsers and their uh, you know the rendering capabilities as far as JavaScript goes. It's uh, it's becoming very very impressive, I think. Yeah, without a doubt, it's getting better and better. I just uh, I I mean, what I like about the Silverlight mix in this thing is the separation of concerns. That that's in its own can. I've I've mm -hmm. talked to enough folks here who are building web parts in 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 SharePoint and struggle with some of the interactivity that sometimes these things don't get along very well. Right. So one of the one of the things I uh, one of the talks that I have that uh, that I can't usually fit into a training because this talks goes on for an entire day. It's a, it's a perfect like a day long workshop uh, where I talk about better architecture through better code structure in SharePoint. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that uh, that we run into very frequently is uh, you know a lot of .NET developers walk into SharePoint and they they lack the they miss the tools that they're used to. Right. And to some extent, they even miss the better development practices, like things like TDD, et cetera, or, 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 or uh, continuous integration become hard to apply to SharePoint. So uh, one of the examples that I have, and I, I uh, you know, the walkthrough, this is, you know, you start with uh, TDD. So let's, you know, if you, if you don't mind, let's maybe talk about that applied Absolutely. to SharePoint. Or in general, all of these agile methodologies applied to, to SharePoint uh, you know, the basic premise is, you know, let's be more agile. So let's say, you know, our conventional thinking 15 years ago, uh, maybe maybe I'm incorrect, but it used to be in you know, the waterfall model in which they said that get the requirements right because the cost of change increases as the project continues, right? Right. So then, they, you know, these people, they came out with a lot of mechanisms and they said, well, let's also look into the... Uh, into an effort to reduce that cost of change. Uh, and there are many techniques around that, and within the life cycle of a project, there are many things you can do. So at the very beginning of the project, you could do pair programming, and then as you, you, you could write tests, or you know, when, if you want to reduce cost towards the end, you say, 
uh, get better requirements up front. And, and the reality is to reduce the cost of change, you should focus on all of these and, you know, see where you get the maximum bang for your buck. So, the, the, for example, the cost of redu- uh, reducing uh, okay, so the, the cost of discovering a uh, faulty requirement is the maximum because you discovered it at the very end in acceptance testing, and then you have to rework a lot of stuff. So the obvious answer there is, well, let's just get better requirements. And, you know, with, with, an, with the budget of Bill Gates, intelligence of MIT, and the patience of Job, you might be able to do that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Right? I mean, but in the ideal world, that would happen, but in the real world, it doesn't. We know requirements change, and as the system uh, continues to remain in production, as business changes, business requirements change. So right. change will happen, right? So, so, but, so, so we try and get better requirements, but at the same time, they also look at these other tools that facilitate change, and TDD is one of them, Right. But one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about, and this so far I've talked about, you know, the plain TDD, and you hear it from a lot of places and so on and so forth. But one of the things that a, peop- that a lot of people don't seem to bring up, and I don't know why, is that there is a cost involved to reduce the cost of change. Hmm. Sure. Right. Yeah. Right. You, so have, you have to put time in to get that done. Those tests, yep. Right. And. And, and somebody has to maintain those tests. And as your requirements change, I would assume that some of your tests will also change, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is, I think, one of the points that Billy Hollis makes very well, uh, where he talks about, in a canonical example, is just look at the absolute amount required to write these tests, and then the absolute amount required to write the code, and you doubled your effort, well, let's say. But I think the whole idea behind specifically TDD is an, or let's say practical TDD, is that you should uh, look at tests as scaffolding on a building, that they're helping build the building, but they're not the building itself. It's the building that matters more. And at least this is my view. And and what I like to do with SharePoint projects is that um, you should, uh, you know, evaluate that there are 10 things I need to do here. In these 10 things, you create a matrix, and it's low, medium, high, low, medium, high. And on one axis, you put the cost to reduce uh, the, the cost involved to reduce the cost of change, right? right? That's one axis. And on the other hand, you put the absolute cost of change if something if you had to rework that piece of work. Mm-hmm. And once you view it practically like that, I think you'll have a matrix where you'll clearly be able to identify uh, that there are certain elements where the cost of change is very high, but the cost involved to reduce the cost of change is very low. Yeah. And that becomes a perfect candidate to write a test against. Sure. Right. Versus versus on the other side, where uh, you know you have examples where something is really quick to write or quick to change. If it's quick to write, generally it's quick to change. But uh, but it is very hard to write a test against. The perfect example being the user interface UI. UI is very hard to write tests against. Right. Yeah. So, so in that sense, if you view SharePoint or any project in the world in that manner, then you suddenly know what tests to write. But what is the most interesting here is, and in coming full loop on the original question you asked, Richard, is uh, that you know these elements are not physically placed in their locations. Something that is uh, you know, harder to write a test against can be made easier to write a test against 
by just moving it through these quadrants by better architecture. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, if you examine a project and you say, uh, you know, what are the factors that make it harder, that will increase your cost of change going forward in the project, even if you are living in the ideal world and you are writing tests for everything you do, some things will continuously increase the, the cost of change in any project, including any SharePoint project. And, and I would I like to say there are four things. One is that, number one, you move heavier with time. You're going to have more code over time. You're going to have a bigger system with time. And uh, th- that's and, and sometimes you also produce no-code artifacts, like how do you test documentation. That's part of your software, too, in a way. Right. Right? Help and so on and so forth. So, number one, you move heavier with time. That problem, you can't do much about. You are going to move heavier with time. Right. Uh, number two are organizational issues that you may not be perfectly agile. Nothing you can do about your customers may not be willing to play with you. Your bosses may not be willing to play with you. So that's number two. This problem also is out of your control. But the two situations that are in your control uh, in any project are, number one, better architecture through better code structure. And number two, uh better practices around deployment. So because continuous integration is one of those things that you would use to reduce your costs over time to create a more predictable system. You know, if your deployment is straightforward, that doesn't require a lot of manual intervention, for instance, uh, that, that would also help reduce the cost of your project long term. So, so this is a, a, a very generic talking about any project, but now let's talk about better uh, those two points that you can do stuff about. Number one being better deployment practices, and number two being uh, you know better architecture through better code. So, specifically when we talk about SharePoint, uh, better deployment practices would mean try and avoid web.config modifications as much as you can because we all know that the SP web config modification class is really buggy. Uh, there are ways that you, there are people have come out with ways that you you collect all your web.config changes in one feature and, and, and that's how you do it. But it's still, it's cumbersome and you know, so you try and avoid it. So when you deploy a WCF endpoint within SharePoint, you don't go around editing the web.config of your web application. You put the web.config changes in a virtual directory somewhere, for instance. So it's the copying mechanism is very reliable in SharePoint, but the web.config modifications are not. And, the, you know, we wish we could do something about that, but, but we didn't write SharePoint. So we just adopt a big system like we do in, in many other projects we do, that we adopt a system that somebody else has written. So it's buggy even in 2010? Well, there are some bugs, sure. Uh, I would say in 2010, they've, in, they've fixed a lot of issues, a lot of complaints for 2007. They've left some of them as is, and they've introduced a few new ones. Uh, and hmm. this is typical to any SharePoint, pro- any project, I would say. And it's just important to know uh, the, the, the platform so you can sort of drive around those bugs and you know where those potholes are. And, and the second thing that I was talking about is better architecture through better code. Uh, so as an example, uh, you were talking about writing web parts, Richard, and a lot of people have struggled yes. with making web parts more testable. And um, one of the uh, – w- w- there are many ways to do this. You can use platforms such as PEX and MOLS or TypeMock to completely abstract the SharePoint API. Mm-hmm. And you can test it completely even outside of SharePoint. So you can host a web part 
in ASP.NET app and uh, and it becomes testable. Uh, but but then you're working outside of SharePoint. You don't have the SharePoint context, which means you don't have the SharePoint security. So what do you do if you're one of your tests relies on SharePoint security? Yes. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure there are ways around that as well. But I walk through this example where I write a simple web part, and uh, the, the, the purpose of that web part is to present security-trimmed navigation across site collections. And I, I uploaded this code on Codeplex, too. Uh, and, and I start by writing a plain vanilla web part. So most people are just going to create child controls or render controls, and you do it that way, right? Right. And then I argue that, you know, this is not really testable. So then I say, okay, I'm going to turn this into a WCF service library. And then I demonstrate that by doing so, I was able to abstract the SharePoint objects into my own custom business objects that that are serialized across the wire, and I control the serialization structure using data contract attributes. Uh, and and in that sense, what you can do now... This is a WCF service at this point? Right. So you write the WCF service that is hosted in SharePoint 2010, right. and it talks with SharePoint objects, and it talks in ASP.NET compatibility mode, so it's working under SharePoint security. Right. And and then you also deploy the web.config right with the WCF service. You don't end up editing the SharePoint's web.config. Interesting. Because we all know WCF likes a lot of web.config entries, at least in 3.5 it does. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But what, yeah. I, what I like about what you're doing here is, is like Silverlight, you've created mm-hmm. an abstraction away from Share, SharePoint's object model to some degree. Right. So you're isolated yeah. from that. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and because now you've created this abstraction, it now becomes very easy for you to fake these objects out, and then you can write tests against them. Right. So one other thing is a better architecture through better code structure. So Silverlight and WPF now use this thing called MVVM, yep. in which they create a view model that, that sort of controls the UI. And, and the whole idea is that your UI is completely reliant on the data binding syntax of XAML. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, let's say if you say checking this checkbox is going to disable those two radio buttons, that knowledge is controlled inside the view model, and therefore it becomes easier to test your UI because you're really testing the view model. You're not testing the, the view itself. Right. And, and in that sense, you know, when you're working with Silverlight, so your, your code becomes a lot more testable. Now, you... RIA services, all MVVM, but RIA services doesn't work in SharePoint 2010 yet because it's .NET 4 only. Uh, but you can do MVVM even today. You can write better code yourself. You just have to handwrite it. That's all. Right. This is just a pattern. It's, you don't need the – there's no library exactly, per right. se. It's just a, a technique. Exactly. So, so then let's say that you abstracted your WCF objects and your, your own custom business objects. So, A, you can test them. So, that becomes – that's awesome. And now you can, you know, write tests against it. And if service doesn't change, you know, you can, or if you want to change the service, as long as your test pass, you know, your UI will work. Right, right there, you've reduced 50% of your cost of change. Uh, and now the other hand, another advantage that you get using this manner is that uh, now by just changing the binding on your uh, WCS service from, let's say, basic HTTP binding to web HTTP binding, and you put the enable web script or web HTTP behavior, uh, you can swap the client from being Silverlight to JavaScript. Interesting. Okay. 
or even jQuery, for instance. So if you yeah. if you do web HTTP binding with the WebGet behavior, the service is exposed over REST, and you in your uh, methods you can say that the serialization format is JSON by default. Yep. And then in JavaScript, you can do dollar dot get JSON, pass in the URL of your uh, backend service where the JSON where the JSON is going to be exposed from, and you give it a callback method. So it's just one line of code. That's it. And and then uh, jQuery will make a call to your WCF service. It'll it'll get the object serialized as JSON and it'll call your callback method. And guess what? Your the object that it returns in JavaScript matches the business object structure that you declared in in C sharp code running on the server in your WCF service. All right. And, and then you can just do a for each through there. And now now here is where the the platform falls a little short is that JavaScript, you can't really do MVVM in JavaScript. Right. Uh, well, it'll be a lot harder. But, but once you do it in, in Silverlight and you know that your JavaScript service, is, your WCF service is, is working, uh, then you just write test against your WCF service, and, and you can be assured that your front-end UI is working just fine. And it's all about being able to build these levels of isolation so you can test everything separately. Levels of isolation. Mm -hmm. Now, another advantage, side advantage that you get out of this is that Silverlight is just an object tag. Right? Yeah. And and your both the Silverlight app and your jQuery app are talking to the same WCS service exposed over two different bindings. Yes. So inside of the object tag, you can put your jQuery code inside of the object tag. Mm -hmm. So then what happens is that if you don't have... Silverlight installed, then rather than, you know, you see that little image that tells you to go download Silverlight. Yes. Rather than that, you'll just see the same functionality be exposed as jQuery. And will that also work on a phone or an iPhone or, or another phone? Right. And and that's that's exactly it. So, like, if you try accessing a SharePoint site over an iPhone and Share, iPhone can't run Silverlight, but it'll render the same UI using jQuery. And honestly, I'm very hard-pressed to find examples uh, other than, uh, you know, extreme animations that make use of graphics acceleration. Even that, uh, you know, other than very isolated examples, I'm, 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 I'm very, uh, you know, it's very hard to find good examples where I must use Silverlight. And uh, media is one of them. Uh, you know, crazy animations is another but if I am able to get 90% of that richness on, a, on an iPhone, uh, without any code rewrite, because my WCF service was the same, I guess I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, no, and, uh, and you're able to use the same test constructs. Like, the, the, There's less and less downside to this. Uh, it sounds like you'd almost start going down an experimentation path where you just try these different technologies and then ultimately implement the ones you really like. But I like the fallback position as well, mm. although you, end up with more, right. you do end up with more code. Oh, yeah, you do end up with more code, but it's an investment in your future. Sure. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, whose RAD controls outperform all others. Are you experiencing performance hits when handling millions of records with your Silverlight grid? Have you been frustrated by the amount of XAML code it takes to create a control template? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your app performance. And of course, there's no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building RAD controls for Silverlight, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. 
Then they apply a respective solution. Through UI and data virtualization, data sampling, and content recycling, Rad Controls help you deliver unbeatable performance with your Silverlight apps. You can check out Telerik Silverlight Grid handling 50 million cells as a piece of cake or Rad Chart working seamlessly with a million records. Just go to Telerik.com slash Silverlight slash performance for details. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. They truly make this show possible. Sahia, we've been asking our guests this weekend to try to remember some uh, or come up with some stories from your experience with customers that have, oh, I don't know, you know, you don't have to name names, but, uh, you know, things that were, the, you know, jobs that you came into that were kind of strange or, or uh, a customer was doing something unexpected with a technology or maybe asked you to develop something completely out of the ordinary. Hmm. Does this have to be a success story or not? No, not at all. We like train wrecks too. <laughs> yeah, actually, train wrecks are more fun. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So one of the one of the most common themes I run into, uh, and this is uh, this is really frustrating. I, I was sitting with a gentleman on the plane yesterday with an Oracle Java background. And oh boy! He confirmed that. Yeah, Oracle, and he confirmed that. Uh, you know, his experience is the same. So this guy was like 45 years old, uh, been in IT for as long as he can remember, but really sharp. He was like an Oracle ace and all that, but he'll remain nameless. Right. So he and I were sharing some frustration, and this is quite interesting, where a lot of managers uh, are, uh, are, are beginning to take the attitude of they don't need to know what they manage. And at any point they say whether it's baking cookies, dropping bombs, or delivering software, they can do it with an MS project. <laughs> you know, it's line items and dependencies and resources. That's all you need to uh, manage any project. There right? you go. A Gantt chart of bombing. I like it. Exactly. And, uh, and, and one of the things that I've run into over and over again uh, is uh, frequently people will, will, will come with a problem and they say, you know, they ignore the details. And and the, but the devil is in the details. But but people are too cool for school, right? And they don't and want to spend that time, up, right? And say, you know, we built all the SharePoint functionality. We just want you to skin it now. And we tried skinning it, and it's all messed up now, right? And we tried doing it in uh, ourselves, and we hired a consultant to do it, and we burned all our budget on this. Can you do it for a hundred bucks? Nice. And those are the kinds of things that I run into over and over again, where people ignore to see the details to begin with, right. and they do not want to exercise their minds to look at the details either. But at the same time, they don't, want, they don't feel, uh, uh, you know, they, they are in charge of all of these projects. So that's a very risky tendency that I see all over the place. Well, and, and everything is cheap when you don't know how to do it. Oh, that must be easy. It's yeah. a very simple we just, thing. We'll just hire a consultant for this in the end. Yeah, it'll be you know, 100 bucks, no problem, it'll be done. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so that's my, I would say, genetic story of the day. Apparently, the Twitter search is hanging. Uh, don't know why. But uh, yeah. maybe you can uh, use Skype or email instead. Twitter needs to get off of the MySQL crap. They need to use a real database. <laughs> <laughs> right? And now I'm going to get hate mail over there. There you go. <laughs> you, you weren't getting enough hate mail? You decided you need to get some more? No, I'm getting plenty. <laughs> Oh. Yeah. All right, do we have time for a joke or not? Absolutely. Yeah, of course. 
Anything okay. to counteract that half hour of absolutely dry content. Nice. Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll keep it clean for the change. Yeah. Uh, and, and credit given to my friend Pedro Diaz, who told me this joke, if you're listening, Pedro. So two geeks, Richard and Sile, go out for a dinner. And uh, after dinner, uh, you know, basically, and Sile says, uh, they pay for dinner, and Sile says, you look, I'm out of cash, Richard. Can you loan me 50 bucks so I, take the, so I can take the cab back home? And Richard says, do you just want to make it 64? It's easier to remember. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it saves bytes in storage. Yeah, exactly. You're not a programmer anyway. or anything, are you? Me or Richard? You might no, be you. a geek. Yeah. You might be a geek. You're definitely geeks. I love being geeks. There you go. It's the ideal life. So, uh, so there, there has to be, you know, I've, I've been, you know, I did consulting for a while there and, uh, I had some stories where, you know, you, you know, things were so effed up that, uh, no amount of un-effing could save it. Have you ever oh, yeah. had a project thrown at you where you just, after a while you looked at it and you're like, what you want is impossible. You cannot oh, yeah, get there yeah, from yeah. here. Well, uh, that's about uh, that happens quite a lot. And one of the things I think you have to realize is uh, the success of a project doesn't depend only on you. Uh, it, it depends on who you're building the project for as well. And if somebody walks into an interview and says, "You know, I've had nothing but successful projects," I know you're lying. Yeah, I know you are. Yeah. Uh, so one of the situations I run into a lot, again, where people, A, don't want to understand the details, or B, um, where business users don't want to engage in the process, um, you know, those are situations where that's just an insolvable project. And it takes about one or two months to see if the attitudes are changing. If not, then at some point you just have to say, look, I know this project won't succeed. I'll be here for the next three years, and you'll keep paying the bills, but I know the project won't succeed. At that point, the best thing to do is just go up to the customer and tell them that this is how you feel. And I think if you've been working in the industry for 15, 20 years and a customer doesn't want to listen to what you're saying, uh, they're lost. Yeah, let, <laughs> let them go. Let them go. Sometimes you have to fire a customer. But the funny part about that is the, the, how threatening it is to let a project fail. The, it is less damaging to their career to spend money on a on an unsuccessful project for three years than it is mm -hmm. that in six months you say, well, let's just pull the plug on this. I'm going to walk yeah. away. Now, another interesting thing is how fast technology changes. If there's a project that has taken a year uh, to deliver, uh, by the time you've delivered in a year, the, the design patterns have changed. Sometimes the technology has changed. Right. So right. Even if you yeah. started doing it perfectly to begin with, your release one contains legacy code. What we need is a um, a tool in Visual Studio that will stop time. Nice. Yeah. Oh God, I'd love to have that tool. Yeah. That'd a, be so nice. It'd be a simple button, actually. Simple user interface. Yeah. Just push it. Like you know, Silverlight is one of those things that is moving at a very fast pace. I think in version one they took forever, but two, three, and four have come. It, at least it feels like it. It seems, it seems to have come out really quick, right? Yeah. So I was working on a project that I was using Silverlight 2, 3, and 4. <laughs> and I started with 2, 
and then looked at the capabilities of what three was offering. And three had these uh, amazing validation errors and ability to create forms based on Silverlight. And so as soon as three came out, I had to redo it. But then suddenly I realized that those objects, the business objects that that are there on Silverlight need translation to the business objects that the VCF is sending. And guess who has to write that translation? You do. Of course you do. Yeah, Sile Day and Sile Night, and two resources. And uh, now with Silverlight 4, with you can use RIA services to sort of alleviate that pain a little, uh, but I can't use that yet. So I am, you know, waiting for this project to or SharePoint to support RIA services so I can start using those new paradigms, but then I'm going to have to go back and refactor my code, and now I have lots of Silverlight applets where I'll have to apply this. Uh, so you just move heavier with time, you know, and it's just it's just the nature of uh, the work. You know, I think the mm. the less code you write, the better it is, and the, general, the yeah. quicker you can deliver the, you know, the more fast-paced you can be, the better it is. We have a, a tweet that came in uh, about your conversation about um, SharePoint testing from Rob Windsor. Mm-hmm. He said, what about the amount of setup code required to mock the SharePoint API? pretty much makes unit testing a non-starter? Yes and no. Uh, So if you want to, first of all, we're trying to avoid mocking the SharePoint API. That's the whole whole thing that we're doing. Uh, And in that way, you you can test your own business objects. But uh, if you do want to mock the SharePoint API, because sometimes let's say you're trying to test an event receiver, which accepts an SP item event properties, which is part of the SharePoint API, and you can't do a new one yet. So you have to mock this object. And you can use uh, either packs and moles or type mock. So I'll describe the experience in both. You install moles from, it's a Microsoft research project. I'm hoping one day it makes it into the non-research phase. And you just, uh, you know, right-click, add, refer- add a mole to Microsoft.SharePoint. And then you sit back for two minutes. And Visual Studio will explore the entire SharePoint API and will create a mock version of the entire SharePoint API for you. Wow. Yeah, wow. That's easy, right? There's no work involved, right? Now, let me describe the other product, a commercial product called TypeMock that does uh, mocking of these objects as well. In TypeMock, what you do is that when you're writing the test, you set up a certain... uh, So then, then you say... I'm in a new item event receiver, and then I call the item event receiver, and as I'm writing the code, a little tooltip pops up and says, I think you're trying to mock this object. Would you like me to do it for you? Press R slash. Wow. I'm serious. And you just hit R slash, and it creates the mock objects for you. That's it. That's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, so, so you can mock objects. I mean, it's not... Uh, but, but, you, but you can't do that... Uh, through, uh, you know, Visual Studio, plain Visual Studio, that you can't do. You do need tools for this. You do need tools for this. And, again, I try and avoid running face-to-face with this problem as much as I can. So, like I was saying, you pick your battles in TDD, you abstract your own business objects, and then, uh, uh, you know, you test those and, and not test the SharePoint API. And, sure, you, aren't, you don't have 100% code coverage, but it's better than zero. Yes. 
Well, and just being able to get some code coverage on a SharePoint app, I think is pretty compelling, right? I think the biggest problem that folks get right. is they build all this stuff in SharePoint and it doesn't work and there's too many moving parts to diagnose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of those moving parts you didn't write. Yeah, you don't own everything. And oddly enough, they're generally the ones where the errors actually are fired. So yep. <laughs> you, can't, you can't try to understand an error occurring in code you don't own quite yep. possibly caused by something you did, but, you know, you're a long way away from seeing that. Right. So, uh, you know, uh, another another thing that I like to do in, whenever I'm in this better architecture to better code workshop is that uh, I ask a question of the audience and I say, how many of you consider yourself to be a SharePoint developer? And you have, you know, many hands rise up in almost the entire class. And they say, how many of you... Uh, are consider yourself to be excellent, top-notch SharePoint developers. You know, some hands go down. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and then I say, okay, how many of you are excellent SharePoint developers and excellent Silverlight developers? And by now, you have about two or three hands standing in the class. Then how many of you know SharePoint, Silverlight, and WCF, and our HTML guards and jQuery guards? <laughs> no hands in the class. Right, you've annihilated them now. Right. And, and so basically, another thing that this lets you do is that if you are abstracting the SharePoint API in your own business objects, then you can rehost the WCF service and through web.config changes, just no code rewrite, just with, with web.config changes, completely take the WCF service out of SharePoint and return mock objects. Okay. Right. And with object collection initializers and C-sharp 3.0, it's a matter of uh, you know, a, a few tabs that you have to type in just a matter of a few seconds, they can mock any method. And and so so in that sense, what you do then is that you host that WCF service now right through Visual Studio. So like a WCF service library and you hit the play button and, and host the WCF service in your uh, system tray. So you just host it like that. And now this suddenly becomes a project that you can right-click, zip, Send it to a guy who's a guru in expression blend. Oh, yeah. Knows nothing about SharePoint. And let him come up with a good-looking UI that the SharePoint developer can just drop into a module and, and, and plug into a page. The question is, how well does that style really propagate across all of SharePoint? Like, you're always going to run into elements that aren't going to respond to that. So, so you know, we were talking that Silverlight doesn't really blend very well with HTML styling right. exactly. anyway. yeah. So, so what I like to do is that I, when I create a SharePoint page, I draw a little rectangle over there, and I'm going to say, this is going to be my Silverlight app. And then you pick some neutral colors for that, and then you just drop the Silverlight app there, and everything goes together. Now, tomorrow, if you drastically change your branding, mm-hmm. you're going to have to redo the colors on your Silverlight app, and right. it's not going to adapt your CSS. You know, that's something we can't do anything about. No. Well, and then you got to debate how often do you do those drastic changes, although, you know, it doesn't have to be that drastic for those sorts of things to show up, too. Just a, a few color shifts or seasonal work, anything like that. It could be a few times a year that yeah. those, those sorts of changes well, need to be made. Make makes a good demo, though. And, and you know, a lot of when ASP.NET 2.0 was new and where they were introducing master pages, I remember they would say, I'm just going to change the master page. Let's say your company gets acquired and we're going to change the look and feel. I'm just going to change the master page. Oh, yeah. Ooh, everything works. You're going right? to make it very easy to deal with acquisition? Really? How often does that happen? It, well, acquisitions are never easy anyway. But right. even if even if you were to swap the master page, practically speaking, 
because HTML is so darn fluid, any complicated UI will require you to redo the CSS. For sure. If the fonts get a little too big and then they're going to overlap with the line on the top, it happens. Yeah. You know, then you need to add the table spacing and all that padding. I'm sorry. You need to do that. So it is never, UI changes are never, never, never as easy as, oh, just change the CSS. Yeah, what? Just change it. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Somebody had to write that CSS and that was a lot of work, you know, or the master page. It's never as easy as control C, control V and the UI changes. Right. But it makes for a good demo, which gets the managers impressed, and they expect that from us. Yeah. Yeah, the, the yeah. Set, setup demos. Well, the guy showed it. Did, he did it in an hour flat. I don't know what you've been spending all this time on. <laughs> my, yeah. my brother could do this in access. <laughs> yeah. That was <laughs> one of my favorite quotes from my experiences. Yeah. You know, if we were using Ruby on Rails, we wouldn't have any of these problems. We should all just use Max. <laughs> <laughs> That'll right. fix everything. Why can you do this in Access? That's, that's <laughs> yeah. so classic, Carl. Yeah, so yeah. Should, yeah, that's cool. I that's don't my understand. favorite Why quote. Why can't you just do this in Access? I used to do this all the time, you know, in yeah. Access. Right, in Access. Well, yeah. it's amazing how many uh, Access team guys at Microsoft went over to SharePoint. Like, there's a distinct relationship between the two. The fact that SharePoint could actually read Access reports. Why do you think mm-hmm. SharePoint takes up so much memory? <laughs> <laughs> that, that brings up the whole okay. question of what's up with I, the SharePoint data model if there's all these guys there that already knew their way around data. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're definitely going to get a lot of hate mail oh, yeah. this, now, but There's a whole lot of love coming well, I'm now. I'm just in wise-ass mode today. There you go. Uh, well, okay, so, uh, you know, didn't SharePoint come out of the access team or something? Yes. Yeah. And, and they, they started creating the, this project, and now... Now they have a thing called access services in which you uh, you have an access database and you point, click, publish, and it creates a SharePoint site out of an access database. Yes. Uh, again, you know, again, details in the fine print. One of the things I noticed is when they do that, to run their reports on lists in access services using SQL, they use SQL Server reporting services. And they use the new local mode of SQL Server reporting services, which means it doesn't really need a SSRS backend behind the scenes. Right. Uh, but they but they turn the session state on on a SharePoint site to do that. Really? <laughs> yeah. What? And, and and if you look at the basic SharePoint web dot configure that comes out of Microsoft, they remove the session state handler in, uh, in the HTTP module. They remove that. Oh, nice. Oh, really? We need another joke. Somebody connect with Skype and tell us a joke. Having a tough Sunday morning there, just, my friend. It's very. It's too early to listen to Sahil talk about SharePoint. Uh, That's all I'm saying. Uh, this is, okay, this okay. is so, smart uh, stuff. Are man. you going to archive this and will this be available? Uh, <laughs> or, or is this going to be? Is this going to be an official record? This is. We. You know what, Sahil? You got to know two things. First is yes, we're going to make shows out of all of these. But second is, I keep a private collection of all of your shows because I just like listening to your voice. Ooh. Just you, know, you can have a private show anytime little, you want. Ah, you're so sweet. <laughs> One ninety nine a minute. Okay, here's another joke. Uh, but before I say this, it's uh, it, it's come down to the point that I can't crack any jokes without pissing somebody. Sorry, without offending someone. So <laughs> that's sort of uh, a anybody given. Anybody with sensitive feelings, please mute the volume for the next minute or so. It's okay? Sunday morning. Go watch One Hundred Huntley Street. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if your feelings get hurt easily, please turn the volume down. Drive all the kids out and all that stuff. Right? Ready? Go for it. Okay, why do women have legs? Oh, don't say this one. Really? Really? Come Sunday on. morning. Let's not do this one. 
That's just offensive. <laughs> and, and I haven't even told the punchline. No, no but I know the punchline. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not even funny. It's just it's so rude, man. <laughs> okay, fine. Fine, let's not do that one then. You have funnier jokes. I've heard them. <laughs> okay, or let's, we don't have to do that one. That's cool. You know, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> 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 We can just tell punchlines of jokes. We do. No, most of us just take the camel into town to get girls. Oh. <laughs> like sheep. They're scared at night. Uh, like a sheep in the in night. In the night. In the night. Yes. Yeah. Alabama, where men are men and sheep are scared. Oh, uh, we're going to get hate uh, mail from Alabama. Alabama. Okay, so the punchline was so they don't leave a trail behind like a snail. Oh, oh come on. Dude, that's just <laughs> awful. <laughs> Why did we put him on in the morning I don't again? Well, he should be in the evenings. With a <laughs> warning, lots of alcohol. You need a you need a wife to smack you around a little bit. That's what you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And I'd straighten up exactly. Yeah, we'll straighten you up. Yeah, you got a new wife though. You have a new wife. Yeah, she's got uh, dual SATA three SSDs. Ah, uh. <laughs> brilliant! I mean, it's it's amazing how fast she is. Nice. Oh boy. Yeah. It, oh my God. I mean, my new computer is, is just amazing. Thirty-two yeah. gigs of RAM, RAID zero, SATA three SSDs, and I backed up three VMs on it. One hundred eighty-two gigabytes, eleven minutes done. Awesome. I'm, I'm done with RAID, by the way. So you can almost handle SharePoint on that machine. <laughs> yeah, would it run SharePoint? <laughs> yeah, not so much. You know, here's a funny thing. When I got this machine, and I and I tweeted that I got this new machine, and uh, Sean Wildermuth replied saying that might be enough to run SharePoint. Yeah, yeah. Now, might be. I mean, we, might we be. are okay. So minimum requirements, aside, actually. Huh? The minimum requirement. Yeah. Well, okay. Jokes aside, uh, it's not that bad. Uh, I, you know, my entire book that, that just came out, the SharePoint 2010 book, the entire book. I wrote that on a core, uh, dual core machine with eight gigs of RAM and an SSD. You have to have an SSD, right? Because uh, that's then, enough to run Word to write your book. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, seriously, I was running the SharePoint 2010 virtual machine and even beta and alpha code. So, and those were not optimized. And so, it you can make you don't need such humongous powerful machines. Just jokes aside, uh, you, you can make it work with that. And I'd allocate, like, in my book and chapter one, I talk about the actual hardware I had and the, 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 the VM configurations and everything. So it's not that bad, really. But, but yeah, it's not like a regular .NET project. Either. But a lot of folks do struggle with the performance of SharePoint. And, and, I, and I have seen this experience where they get better hardware and it isn't faster. So it's not necessarily no. the horsepower of the machine. It's something else inside of the app that's the problem. And it's a pretty closed system, isn't it, Richard? Yeah, that's. I think that's the biggest frustration that folks have with SharePoint is this: the black box Comment. effects. I have no recourse. Something, mm-hmm. you know, I have a bug. I have a performance problem. Something like this, and it's not my code. I can't. It's not. Uh, it's completely opaque. I don't know what to do. I need to call Sahil. He will save me. Well, uh, the, you know, you're right, and this is one of the most common complaints I hear about. It's not performing well. But, and then you ask him, what do you mean? I say, I don't know, sometimes, and randomly. Yes. And, and, okay, well, that helps, thanks. 
But it's that insecurity um, that, you know, I do get complaints from my customers mm -hmm. about my SharePoint site. And then when yeah. I try it, it's not so bad. But then sometimes it is bad. You know, it, it is that randomness that makes people so uncomfortable. Randomness, yeah. And um, so in 2010, they have this new database called WSS underscore logging. Really? Uh, and yeah, and Microsoft invites you to write queries against it. The schema is documented. And one of the queries that they've written for you out of the box is called slowest pages. Nice. And so just it's by regular what? usage of SharePoint, you can just run that report and you'll you'll be able to see exactly what pages are slow and at what times. And so that gives you data mining info. But at the same time, when you talk about performance, there could be so many reasons why performance of SharePoint is getting slower. It could be that you have uh, over-abused the content database uh, or over-abused any particular feature inside of SharePoint. Uh, or you could it could be that the generated HTML is such that you are writing web parts in such a way that uh, that, that are making a bad problem much worse. Right. Uh, a good example might be view state. Uh, and, and also, you know, if you enable session state and suddenly your pages get a lot heavier. So it could be that things that are used that you are used to in ASP.NET because your ASP.NET apps are much fine-tuned and lighter and better polished and because they're hand-built, they're custom-made. Anything hand-built is going to be more polished. Sure, and, uh, and only and, do and, what you know, needs to be done. Right, uh, but with SharePoint, uh, because this one platform can do so much that in certain instances, they've had to make compromises. And, you know, that's perfectly reasonable, too. Uh, you don't, a perfect example is when you write your custom apps, uh, 80% of your tables are not that big. Yeah. But, uh, but, but you hire a DBA and he writes these T-SQL scripts for every damn thing in the world and table spacing and database spacing and, uh, and he has to update statistics, maintain indexes and you have countless meetings about what should be indexed and what shouldn't be indexed and you, have to analyze your entire application to know really what indexes are going to be good on your app. Uh, and, you know, the automated tools don't help. Uh, you know, Kimberly Tripp will, will give you plenty of examples of where the automated tool tells you one thing, and, and if you need a human being to look inside a database and tell what, what's going on. SharePoint, on the other hand, for those 80% scenarios, doesn't require any of that. You just deal with the database at a physical level, and when you create a list, you create it right through the UI, and right out of the UI, the views are created on it, item-level permissions are there, uh, basic formatting can be done, and it is exposed over a REST-based API. A SQL Server table can't do that. But for you get, for what you're getting, the positive that you're getting for that, the negative is that you are working with a product, and you have to know the quirks of the product. And if you do certain things that sometimes are documented and sometimes are not, uh, it, it can harm your SharePoint installation, like performance. Sahil, uh, Pete Brown wants to know if your machine is a 7.9 WEI or Windows Experience Index machine. Ah, uh, again, What's your number? Again, the is, well, the number is five, but the, there's a good reason why it's five. I put my OS on a spinning disk and I put the page file and, uh, and the page file and, and my VMs on the SSDs. 
Mm-hmm. And the reason I did that, because for how much RAM I had, I'm hitting the page file more than I'm hitting C slash Windows. Okay. So application startup is slower, but once I've been running the computer for a while, like a day, the overall experience is quicker. And because the Windows Experience Index hits the, your, your C drive on which the OS is, which in my case is slow, uh, and once you make big enough SSDs, I'll, I'll get that. But uh, it, and that's why it's five. But if I was to run, uh, you know, the, the SSD itself, uh, if I was to run the uh, Windows Experience Index on the SSD, and I did that, I installed the OS on that, then it's all 7.9, yeah. Okay. He said, Hill, it's been great talking to you. We're all out of time. And uh, we'll uh, have you back on the show sometime real soon. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And please don't mind the jokes. If there's any hate mail people, please send them to Richard and Carl. <laughs> 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 all right, Sahil, thanks very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.